Hey, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Let's not waste any time. Let's see what the text has for us. The Apostle Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And all God's people said, I'd like to title this talk today, Unity Begins With You. Unity Begins With You. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this time together. God, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us. God, I pray that in the next few moments you would just move me out of the way. And you would speak. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Hey, a question. Do you remember your first car? Like maybe you were 16 and a family member gave it to you. Or maybe you worked really hard and bought that car. But but do you remember your first car? How many of you remember? So my first car I worked really hard for. It was the truck that I actually drive now. Now, if you have seen... Um, why are you laughing? Uh, if you've seen my truck, you know that um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a work truck. It gets me to and fro. I named it Earl. Now, if your name is Earl in here, don't be offended by this, but this is why I named it Earl. See, when I think of an Earl, I don't think of Earl being pretty. I don't think of Earl having all the bells and whistles, but here's something about somebody named Earl. He shows up. He goes to work. He may have some grease on him, but he gets the job done, okay? Now, those of you who have seen my truck know that, you know, I'm not exactly driving a Mercedes-Benz or anything. But you would be shocked to know that when I first bought that truck from the dealership, it was a thing of beauty. You see, I went to that dealership and, you know, I I, I talked with a guy and he said, hey, I, I have... I have something for you. And I walked up and man, it was shining. It was polished. And I got this truck and I drove it home. And man, I loved that truck so much when I got it being 18 years old. I washed it twice a week. Now, if you ask me when was the last time I washed it, I'd probably tell you about three years ago. But at least when I got it, I would wash it twice a week. I'm thinking, man, this thing is perfect. This thing is, it's beautiful. How could anything be better than this? But... The more that I washed it, and the more that I spent time detailing it, every time I would wash it, I would say, huh, I never saw that scratch before. And then I would wash it the next time, and I'd go, oh, I never knew there was a dent right there. How how did I never see this? And oh, there's a scratch here, and oh, and I would find all these things wrong with my beloved perfect truck. Now, you couldn't tell me that I should get rid of it. You couldn't tell me that it wasn't perfect. I loved it scratches, dents, and all. Um, I'll tell a little story here, and I'm not sure they're here today, so I can tell the story. Um, uh, I, I, I was at the house a few weeks ago, and I get a call from Pastor Lyle. Um, this was a Saturday. And he said, uh, hey, I, can you come over to the church? 
I said, yeah, what's going on? And he said, I, I just need you to come over to church. I'm thinking, what in the world? I'm like, what, what, what's going on? And I go over and I walk back to the back parking lot and by my truck, I remembered I left my truck at the church that day because I just walked home. You know, I just live right over here. And I walk over and I realize that Lori Rager is standing by my truck and she's doing this. I'm thinking, what in the world just happened? And I walk up and Lori is like terrified. She's just, you know, distraught. And she looks at me and she said, oh my gosh, I backed into your truck. Is everything okay? And I said, well, did it hurt the truck? And she goes, well, I think it, I think it knocked your bumper down a little bit and maybe put a dent in it. I said, but did it put a dent in your car? And she goes, no, nothing happened to my car. I said, I'm only mad at you because you didn't total the thing so I could go get a brand new one. Like, why? She thought I was going to be so mad. But lo and behold, I, I still love this truck. But, but here's something that I know. The more time I spent with it, the more time that I had it, the more I noticed that it wasn't exactly this perfect, polished thing of machinery than I, that I thought it was at first. And I don't know about you, but I've spent enough time in church to know that when we show up here, especially when we first start coming to a church, man, we're polished. Now, we got everything in order. We make sure that we look like we have the perfect family. We make sure we look like we're the perfect Christians. But here's something I know about me and you as brothers and sisters in Christ. The more time we spend with one another, we start noticing little scratches. And we start noticing little dents and little imperfections that we didn't see at first. But here's the question that me and you have to answer. Do we love the local church enough to love it through those dents and those scratches? Do we love our brothers and sisters enough where we're able to bear with one another despite our imperfections because we love one another? Now, uh, I know you would be shocked to hear this, but did you know that sometimes church people disagree about things? No, no, not the Baptist church. Do you know that? I, I know that's hard to think of, right? Um, if I told you all the church argument stories I've experienced, I'd be up here all day. But I looked up a few that I thought you might find interesting. One church in Mississippi once held a business meeting to vote what kind of green beans to serve at the church's Thanksgiving dinner. True story. One church passed a motion to never serve gluten-free bread for the Lord's Supper because in their words, we all know that that gluten is a sin. Well, it's gluttony, it's not gluten Still true. One church lady made a motion for the church to make a policy never to use the word potluck and instead change it to pot blessing because we Christians, we don't believe in luck. My favorite, church members argued for three hours in a business meeting about the budget being off 10 cents. It didn't hit someone until the third hour of heated debate that he could simply pull a dime out of his pocket and fix the whole issue. Now, now those are obviously some silly things uh, to argue and fuss about in church, but on a more serious note, here's something we have to understand, church. Lean over close. Don't miss this. In the local body of believers, Satan loves disunity. Satan loves disunity. I got a quote here by Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon once said that Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. 
Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. And so with so much division, so much strife and chaos, I believe the Lord is telling us this morning that creating a culture of unity doesn't start by us blaming and pointing out everyone outside of us. But it starts with evaluating ourselves. And my prayer is this morning that as we unpack this text, we would use the words of Paul to the church in Ephesus, not as a magnifying glass to which we judge the actions of others, but rather a mirror that we hold up to evaluate ourselves. In the text, I believe we see three realities of unity. The first reality I believe that we see is the call of unity. Can everybody say call? Everybody say call. Paul in verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, we see in this verse that Paul first gives the church in Ephesus a perspective. And now it's important to know why Paul uses the word therefore. Um, so when Paul uses the word therefore, what he's doing is he's connecting the two parts of the book. So the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians deal with the gospel story, while the later three chapters deal with the church's story. So Paul, he moves from principle to practice. He moves from doctrine to duty, if you will. Now, at this time, it's important to know that the city of Ephesus was known as the mother city, the, the metropolis of Asia. People believe that there was a quarter of a million people there, and the population was growing fast. And in this vast number of the population, there were all kinds of different belief systems. You had believers who had recently come out of idol worship, especially those who worshiped the Greek goddess Artemis. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul was converting so many people to the faith who worshipped the Greek god Artemis that the people who made a profit off of that idol worship started to get ticked at Paul because like, hey, don't play with my pockets here. We used to make money off of this. Now, not only were there people from uh, the, the background of idol worship, but you had people who believed in sorcery and magic. And in this mix, you have people who just converted out of Judaism. And so Paul is speaking to the church in Ephesus and all these different people who have all these different backgrounds and beliefs. And he decides to first show them the beauty of Christ and who he is when he writes things in the first part of Ephesians. Like in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so Paul decides to first show them the beauty of Christ and how he has saved them from their sin. And then he says, therefore, by knowing all that God has done, now I want you to act upon it. Church, here's something that I don't think a lot of us understand. Um, did you know that lost people are always going to act like lost people? Have you ever thought about that? How many times do we want to first get lost people to start acting Christ-like before we actually introduce them to Christ? What instead of judging people and trying to get them to change their actions, what if we first showed them the beauty of the gospel and then we let God change them from the inside out, knowing that there's nothing really we can do. We're not smart enough to change anybody. First we show them who Jesus is, that's our job, and then we let Jesus take care of the rest. 
You see, the late Billy Graham once said that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and our job to love. I believe that. So Paul gives them that perspective. He starts off saying that, but he also gives them a plea when he urges them to live a life worthy of their call. And we know that by looking in the original language, the Greek here, Paul's not saying, hey, um, it'd be nice if you lived a life worthy of your call, or it'd be great if you decided to do this. No, Paul is begging. He is pleading. Like yesterday, I'm begging and screaming at the TV for Kentucky to not lose to Ole Miss. By the way, I didn't even put this in my notes, but by the way, it seems like every time I preach, my team loses a terrible game the day before. I'm done preaching at this rate. Like, this will be my last time. So I hope you enjoy it. Paul here is begging the church, please don't sow discord. You don't understand. You have to understand the beauty of unity. You have to understand how important that is. And so he is begging. He's pleading with them. Now, the root word of worthy here in the original language gives the idea of balancing scales. What weighs this much over here has to weigh this much over here. Paul is saying that the person whose position in Christ must also match their practices in living out their faith. And if I can just simplify it this morning, this is what Paul is saying. Hey, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you should act like it. If you're a Christian, you should act like it. Church, I think so many of us take this thing, especially Southern Baptists, once saved, always saved, and praise God theologically, I believe that to be true. But I say this in love this morning. If we use once saved, always saved to go out into the world and live any way that we want, you need to check whether or not you were once saved and always saved. And so Paul tells them, live a life worthy of your calling, worthy of the gospel. And so the question becomes, if we're to live worthy, what does that look like? And so secondly, I see, I think we see the characteristic, um, we see the reality of unity, and that's the characteristics of unity. Second, verse 2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul gives some Christ-like characteristics for the church to evaluate themselves on. The first thing he mentions is humility. Now, if you're in here and you say, Noah, um, when, when it comes to spiritual gifting, humility has to be my top. It's kind of an oxymoron. I, I, I was discipling a student one time at my previous church, and he said, Noah, I'm trying to be humble, but what if nobody notices? <laughs> But you know, humility is often confused with weakness. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Now, the Romans and the Greeks, they didn't even have a word for humility. And in their uh, dictionary, in their vocabulary, there's about 4,000 more words than the English language. And even though they had this vast vocabulary, they didn't even have a word for humility. You know what that is? They didn't think it was noble. To be humble. Why be humble? I, I want to be arrogant. I want to be brave. I want everyone to know who I am. That's why it made no sense when Jesus stepped on the stage and he wasn't the everyone know me as king, everyone do the everything. Jesus steps on as a humble servant. In Philippians chapter 2 we see 
The Paul, uh, Paul said to the church in Philippi, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And think about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, not count equality with God something to be grasped. And so Paul also mentions the Christ-like characteristic, though, in our text of gentleness. And we see that's who Jesus is in Matthew 11. When Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He also mentions the Christ-like characteristics of patience. Now, the Greek term here for patience basically means a long time before someone gets angry. And that's basically the same way that God puts up with sinful Humanity, think about it in Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, these characteristics are the overflow of understanding who Christ is and who we are in him and his church. And when we understand this and we possess these characteristics, only then will we be able to do what Paul says later on in the text when he says we should bear with one another in love. This is the idea of being able to withstand any kind of conflict you may have with someone because you know Jesus. You are humble, gentle, and patient. You have the characteristics. Now, a lot of you probably know who Steve Jobs is. Steve Jobs, the one who made Apple what it is today, and obviously he's passed away, but we remember all of the you know, great presentations that Steve Jobs did. I have a picture that we can show. Now, you know who Steve Jobs is, but you probably don't know who the guy in the middle is. The guy in the middle's name is Ronald Wayne. And Mr. Wayne was one of the co-founders of Apple. You see him there in between Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. But people don't know about Ronald Wayne, even though he was one of the main founders. You see... Mr. Wayne was really the brains behind Apple. He was the one who got the business structure going and he made sure that everything was in case. Steve Jobs was really just a marketer. He was really a cheerleader. Um, And in the early days of Apple, Ronald Wayne decided, you know what, working with this guy, I don't think I'd handle it anymore. And so they're, they're always fighting about this and always having to deal with this and always doing this in meetings and they're discussing, should the logo really be an Apple and who's going to get paid what? And Mr. Wayne said, you know what, I'm done with this. And Mr. Wayne sold 100% of his stake as a founder in Apple for $800. Today, that stake in Apple would be worth $90 billion. I think that's something I would do. Like, man... You know, if, just a side note, if you watch an interview with him, he's like, I don't regret it. We know you're lying. You regret it. But here's what we learned from that. When we're not able to bear with one another, despite all of our differences and despite all the things that we disagree about, man, we miss out on so much. How many people do me and you write off that God intended to come into our life to be our best friend in a time of need? And how many people have we written off and said, I don't want anything to do with you when God placed that person in our life for a specific need that we would need later? When me and you write people off, we miss out on best friends. We miss out on brothers. We miss out on sisters. And so, church, this is what we need to know. Bear with one another. I'm going to let you down. 
You're going to let each other down. This church is going to let you down. There's no such thing as a perfect church. And you know, if you went to the perfect church, it would cease being a perfect church because then you walked into it. I've heard it said that all you have to do to be offended by a church is go to one long enough. Why is that? Well, when you mix a sinner plus a sinner, that equals a bunch of sinners who sin against one another. And so we're going to do that. But church, we have to believe that unity is so important that we're able to bear with one another despite these small, trivial differences. Amen. Now, not only does Paul show us the call of unity and the characteristics of unity, but lastly, we see the cause of unity. The cause of unity. Verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And in these three verses, we see some Trinitarian theology played out. Did you notice it? One Spirit, one Lord, and one Father. Now, I want us to go through verse 4 again, but this time I want everyone to help me out, and I want us to count together how many times we see the word one. And, you know, I grew up in western Kentucky where the education is so-and-so, so so I'm going to count with my fingers, so can you just do that with me? Just count with your fingers so I don't feel insecure. So let's read through this again. We're going to count every time we see the word one. Here we go. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many times you got? Hey, if you've been around church long enough, you know that the number seven is uh, pretty significant, right? Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of spiritual completion, spiritual perfection. And you think, well, you know, that's that biblical numerology stuff. That may be whatever. Well, think about it like this um, and see if you're convinced that the, 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 the Scripture is trying to show us something here. God created everything and rested on the... Naaman is commanded to bathe in the Jordan seven times to be cleansed of leprosy. Jesus says he is the I am. How many times? Seven times in Matthew and told his followers to forgive those who wronged you. Seventy times what? Seven times. Maybe the best known use of seven is when Joshua and the people marched around Jericho for seven days, circled it seven times on the seventh day, then had seven priests blow seven trumpets before the walls came down. And so there's obviously something cool about this number seven. And so you have Paul using Trinitarian and Numeriological. Boy, that's a big word for me. Imagery, in, in doing so, he's trying to show the church in Ephesus that just as the Trinity is one, singular, it's also plural, Father, Son, Spirit. And just as there is one body of Christ, singular, it's the pluralities and all the multiple things that make up the beauty of it and make it complete. The beauty of the Trinity is that it's three persons in one. And the beauty of the church is this. Lean real close. Don't miss it. God unifies His church by diversifying it. Think, think about who is a part of the Christian church. It doesn't match the way that you enter into a group by human standards. The church doesn't require that you come from a certain family background. It doesn't require that you come from a certain social background. It doesn't require that you pay a certain amount of money. 
The beauty of the church is that it is inclusive yet exclusive all at the same time. And the beauty of the church is that no matter if you are rich, poor, short, tall, white, black, or brown, we can all come together and celebrate the fact of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins, resurrected from the dead for our salvation, and walking with us every single day for our sanctification. And not only that, but we can stand as an example to the world of what true unity looks like. When the world and the news outlets try to tell us that our identity is found in our race or our finances, or our political affiliation, the church stands up and says, no, our identity is found in Christ and him alone. And so the reason that white, black and brown brothers and sisters can come together and unite despite their differences is due to the red blood that Jesus shed on the cross of Calvary. And the reason that people with so many different views can unite together is the fact that our ultimate allegiance isn't to the party of the donkey or the party of the elephant, but our allegiance is to the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah who is coming back one day for his people to reign forever. But most of all, we can unite with one another despite our differences because of how we see Jesus. You know, if we just all kept our eyes on Jesus and we just focused on the gospel, I would bet that we wouldn't argue about such petty things. If we would just focus and keep our eyes on Jesus, I bet we wouldn't get in as many arguments as we get into. You know, the thing about Jesus is he's all around. You don't really have to look that far to find Jesus. Everywhere I look, I see Jesus. I see Jesus in the beauty of the universe and I'm reminded of how powerful He is to make such a thing when I look at it. I see Jesus in the beauty of the people of God when they gather together and worship Him. I see Jesus in the Scriptures, and not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No, no, no. I see Jesus in every book of the Bible. You notice that? You ever read your Old Testament and say, hey, there's a picture of Jesus. Don't believe me? Check this out. In Genesis, Jesus is our Creator and our promised Redeemer. In Exodus, he's our Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's our water in the desert. In Deuteronomy, he becomes the curse for us. In Joshua and Judges, he delivers us from injustice, and he's the commander of the Lord's army. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the prophet, priest, and king. In First and Second Kings, he's a ruler greater than Solomon. In First and Second Chronicles, he's the son of David that is coming to rule eternally. In Ezra, he's the priest proclaiming freedom. In Nehemiah, he's the one who restores what is broken. In Esther, he protects his people. In Job, he's the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he's our song in the morning and in the night. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he's our meaning for life. In Song of Solomon, he's the author of faithful love. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping Messiah. In Lamentations, he assumes God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man. In Daniel, he is the stranger in the fire with us. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband even when we run away. In Joel, he is sending his spirit to his people. In Amos, he delivers justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, he's the judge of those who do evil. In Jonah, he's the world's greatest missionary. In Micah, he casts our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, he proclaims future world peace we cannot even imagine. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he's the warrior who saves. In Haggai, he restores our worship. In Zechariah, he's a prophesied Messiah pierced for us. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness who brings healing. 
And then we get to the New Testament. Matthew, he's the Messiah who was king. He's the Messiah who was servant. And Mark and Luke, he's the Messiah who was a deliverer. And John, he's the Messiah who was God in the flesh. In Acts, he's the spirit of God who dwells in his people. In Romans, he's the righteousness of God. In First and Second Corinthians, he's the power and love of God. In Galatians, he is our very life. In Ephesians, he's the unity of the church. In Philippians, he's the joy of our life. In Colossians, he holds the supreme position in all things. In First and Second Thessalonians, he's our returning king. In First and Second Timothy, he's the savior of the worst sinners and the leader of leaders. In Titus, he's the foundation of truth. In Philemon, he's our mediator. In Hebrews, he's our high priest. In James, he matures our faith. In First and Second Peter, he's the one who guards us from false teaching. In First, Second, and Third John, he's the source of all fellowship, God in the flesh, source of all truth. In Jude, he protects us from stumbling. And in Revelation, whoo, he is the King of all kings. Lord of all lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the one who is coming again to make all things new. I see Jesus in every book of the Bible, y'all. You see, we can see Jesus everywhere we look, but, but here's my question in closing this morning. Does the world see Jesus when they look at us? Does the world see a picture of Jesus when they look at his church? Jesus said that you will know my disciples by their love for one another. You know, COVID happened two years ago, and it seemed when COVID happened, the world went crazy. And with it, the church and everything, and everyone was fighting over every little thing. And uh, we've had about two years to get it out of our system. And so church for First Baptist Gillettsville, all the way to the biggest church in America, all the way to Ebenezer 9 in a little old country church in Alabama. Here's what we need to know. Now's the time for unity. Now's the time to make the gospel our top priority and to commit our allegiance to the things of God and to the unity of the church. Now, when you spell the word unity, what's the first letter you use there? And so I just came to church this morning to remind us that unity begins with you. And unity begins with me and it begins with looking in of ourselves. I heard one pastor say, no, the church isn't perfect, but nevertheless, it sure is beautiful. And so we have to believe in the beauty of the church. And when it comes to living in unity with one another, may we always first see what we can do ourselves to contribute to the cause. And may we always use scripture not as a magnifying glass to judge others, but as a mirror to which we evaluate ourselves. And may we join the hymnist when he penned the words, Search me, O God, my actions try and let my life appear, as seen by thine all searching eye, to mine my ways make clear. Search all my sense and know my heart, who only can make known, and let the deep, the hidden part, to me be fully shown. To me be fully shown. Would you bow with me? Jesus, we love you. Lord, thank you for our time together. God, thank you that you're the one who unites all things. God, I pray that you would press the spirit of unity upon us. It's in Jesus' name, amen.